Would you please be seated? Sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you uh, this morning, uh, and we come before your word, which is inerrant and infallible. And Father, we long to hear from you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be working now in our hearts, that we might understand your truth, we might respond in faith, and live all the more for you and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage contains some actual hard teachings. Uh, They're teachings that are often quoted their love for their simplicity and their brevity, and they're easy to understand. Rejoice always. Be reasonable. Don't be anxious. Pray. Their simplicity also makes them ripe for abuse in the hands of fellow Christians, or even at the hands of our own conscience. The piety police are always looking to arrest people who fail these commands, and our own conscience knows how short we fall of these commands. For this reason, these commands may even seem outlandish to us, They may seem like they don't match the reality in which we live. From where you sit, it might seem completely unreasonable to rejoice always. I mean, wouldn't it be a little more rational to say rejoice most of the time, but always seems a bit much. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything? If it said, you know, don't be anxious about the small stuff, wouldn't that seem a little more achievable? The absolute nature of the commands here in Philippians 4 almost seems to invalidate our human experience because we know full well we're not always rejoicing. We are, in fact, anxious about all sorts of things, and we're not always praying when we so often do anything but pray. I bring this all up because a message from a passage like this can be very, it can be preached with a moralistic simplicity. Uh, Just try harder, right? And I want you to hear from the very beginning that the point of these verses is not simply try harder. That's like telling someone who has a cold to just stop coughing, right? You've been around someone who's coughing, you're like, just stop. If only it worked that way, right? Or if you've ever been around a baby, you just baby's crying. You can't just say, just stop crying. It doesn't work. It doesn't work this way also to just say, simply try these things harder. What Paul is doing here is not trying to beat us up or make us realize how far we, short, we fall short. What he's doing is he's sharing his wisdom. He is pastorally leading this flock of Christians in in the town of Philippi to green pastures because he's been through hardships. He has put his faith in the action. He has gleaned and learned the hard lessons, and he is turning his attention at the end of this letter to the people to share with them the wisdom that they need. And he does this by making several appeals, and the first of these we're going to look at, we're going to look at three of them, okay? But the first of these appeals he makes is found in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So that's number one. Rejoice always in the Lord. Uh, If you didn't know, I work uh, in in the Navy as a chaplain. That's my full-time job. 
And I oftentimes have Marines or sailors come to me for counseling. It's a lot of what I do. And because it's military, we have rank. Every single person we wear it on our collar, even a chaplain like myself. And a lot of people will come to me because they're stressed or anxious or have PTSD or something along those lines. But can you imagine if a young sergeant came to me for counseling and he's sitting across from me, he's telling me he's depressed, he's telling me he is unhappy. Can you imagine if I just said to him, hey, listen, I order you to just be happy. You're welcome. I outrank you. It's the military. You have to do it. So there you go. See you later. Glad I could help. Off you go. Problem solved. That would be absolutely insane, right? It would be ridiculous. It wouldn't work. He would leave. (laughs) I can tell you that. And he'd go find somebody else to talk to. The command in verse 4 is repeated. If you notice, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul is not a dumb person. He realized that this command may seem a little strange at first. It may seem on the surface unreasonable to command somebody to rejoice. In fact, that's why I think it's repeated. He wants us to hear it again. But Paul's call here for Christians to rejoice always in the Lord is not an emotional experience that he's calling us to. He's not calling us to a feeling. Now, this is also not a call to minimize the hardships that we experience in this world or to ignorantly act as if difficult things are not difficult. I think it's helpful to remember that these words that Paul wrote, he wrote them while he was sitting in a prison. Likely he was in Rome, in prison, awaiting judgment, and a judgment that likely could and did result in his execution and death. That's the context in which Paul is writing, Rejoice always, I'll say it again, rejoice. Paul wrote these words as a man who, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians, felt the daily pressures and anxiety for all the churches. This was written by a man that was wrongfully arrested, sent off to Rome, shipwrecked on the way there, bitten by a snake, and left to wither under house arrest for years. You see, the church in Philippi is under heavy under the heavy hand of Roman occupation. They faced persecution. They faced false teachers. They faced conflicts between one another and their church. And Paul calls them to rejoice knowing all of that. This is not an you know, idealistic call of a young man. This is a man who's experienced the difficulties of life and gone through the hardships firsthand, and yet he does not shy away from saying, Rejoice in the Lord always, I rejoice. And notice, though, his call for them to rejoice is laced with one important qualifier in the Lord in the Lord the command to rejoice is a call to cultivate a righteous joyful attitude in all circumstance because of the lordship of Jesus and this attitude is not one of circumstances except the circumstance of being in the Lord because a Christian is in the Lord All the ups and downs of life are filtered or must be or should be filtered through that great reality. The command to rejoice here is not mere encouragement. He is calling Christians, he's calling you and I, even distressed Christians, especially distressed Christians, to fall back on their Lord. Ultimately, it's an appeal to faith. It's an act of faith that results in action. You see, a Christian is to develop rejoicing as a discipline or a pattern of life. This is an active choosing to consider your position of being in the Lord above and against whatever present circumstances of life you find yourself in. And like any discipline, this doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily without practice, and it doesn't come without failures. 
And if we view this command here right away, the first command is a discipline, something that's not the fruit of motivation, but the result of a well-trained mind and and a self-controlled spirit. This command makes a lot more sense. It's not an emotional experience, and it's not motivation. He's calling us to a discipline. My my definition of discipline is this. Doing what you want to do when you don't want to do it. Doing what you want to do when you don't want to do it. That's what a discipline is. And there are times when rejoicing might not be high on the list of priorities. There are times when you simply just may not feel like rejoicing. That's life. Heeding this appeal and following Paul's command here does not mean you fake a smile and you raise your hands and sing along to Christian radio. That's not what it means. It means that the loudest narrative in your life is not your external circumstances. It's your position of being in the Lord. It's the banner under which you live. And I love, the, I love the, actually the, the, the kind of picture of a banner. I think of Exodus chapter 15, 17, verse 15, where Moses says, the Lord is my banner. It's a very biblical idea that you're living under a banner. Uh, another Navy story, as a chaplain in the Navy, you may not know this, but when you're underway on a ship and I'm leading a church service, there's one flag in the United States uh, law that is allowed to fly above the national ensign, the national flag. And it's the church pennant. It's this white uh, diamond-shaped flag, and it has a cross on it, a blue cross. And when a chaplain is running a church service on a ship, we put that pennant above the American flag, and we hoist it up. And the ship is supposed to come to a stop. All activities are supposed to halt. This doesn't always happen, but it's supposed to, okay? People are supposed to be quiet and respectful if they're not going to the church service. But it's a way of signifying to every other ship in the area, be they friend or foe, and everybody, everybody on that ship, that right now what we're about is this divine worship service. We're about honoring God. And whether you're in that service or you're working or that's just not what you're about, you're supposed to recognize that banner and live under that reality. The ship transforms into a non-combatant ship while that flag is flying. It's a great picture. It's an idea of what happens when you have a banner over your head. It signifies, it unifies, and it identifies what you're about and what you're doing. And this is what Paul's getting at here as well. What is the banner of your life? What banner you know, dominates who you are as a person? What narrative do you live under? Some of the most common ones I see in my counseling ministry are busy, stressed, anxious. These things define people, right? Everybody's busy. Somebody says, how are you doing? I'm busy. Why don't you just raise that banner to the top of your life, right? And these are all imminent problems. They're real. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're real, but they're based on our material circumstances. But these banners will just jump right to the top of the flagpole and dominate our life. In fact, if you look a little bit later on in our section of Scripture, verse 8, take a look. Paul gives us some practical ways to develop a better, more biblical banner, to develop the discipline of rejoicing. He says this, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, think about these things. Fill your mind with these things. Dwell on them. Let them steep in your mind like a bag of tea and hot water, right? Let, let those things saturate your soul, things that are true and excellent. What you choose to think about and let into your mind will absolutely shape your life and how you handle hardship. Paul knows this firsthand. And this is not pop psychology. This is a biblical principle. You know, I've, de- I've deployed twice with the military and uh, once on with a ship and then once with Marines boots on the ground in the Middle East. 
And uh, if you want to know what a deployment is like, it's like, it's like basically an odd mix of summer camp and prison. That's what it's like. I tell people, okay? It's a hard experience, and being on the ship is probably the hardest. And I remember seeing firsthand on the ship this principle in place of what people chose to think about, how it dominated their life. For example, th- there, were, there were people on the ship during deployment that they just kept telling themselves that everything was terrible. The food is terrible, the work is terrible, the, the bathrooms are gross, you know, it's loud, it's hot, whatever it was, that became something they just, a loop, they just played over and over and over. It's terrible. And you know what? It became true. It was terrible. And that became the dominant theme of their life. And they never got over that. Those who filled their mind with better things, good things, true things, they handled that hardship better. The hardship was always going to be there. It was always going to be there. It was still deployment, still living on an 800-foot-long piece of floating steel with a thousand of your best friends away from home. But thinking about things that are true, honorable, lovely, thinking about these things is a discipline that leads to rejoicing. I was thinking about what is true for a Christian. You know, what is something that we can think about? What is... What is just and pure and lovely? Well, we're in the Lord. We're in the Lord. I I kept coming back to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a beautiful Lord's Day one. I won't read the whole thing, but it starts out by saying this. uh, What is your only comfort in life and death? That you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's your comfort, that I am not my own. I belong body and soul to Jesus. That's something that's true, it's pure, it's lovely, and a thought that should dominate us and point us to the reality of living in the Lord. And if you do that, the banner of your life is rejoicing. So that's the first appeal that Paul gives us. The second one is this, it's found in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And this little command here is like a mountain that happens to have two really tall mountains next to it, okay? Be anxious, don't be anxious, and rejoice again. Those two verses are very, very popular and known. This verse in the middle, this command, is a little bit less known and oftentimes skipped over. Uh, It's not as crocheted as much and put on the wall, but it's every bit as important. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is an appeal that's concerned with what we're known for as Christians to the outside world. What does everyone know you as? And when the world thinks of you as a Christian, Paul says he wants them to think of reasonableness. At least that's what the ESV says. This is one of those places in the Bible where the English just falls a little bit short. There there truly is no really good word-for-word translation to capture the concept that Paul is going for. And that's why if you actually look at various English translations, there's there's a lot of variation. For example, the NIV says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The, The NLT says, let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. The CSV says, let your graciousness be known. And the NASB also says, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. They're kind of dancing around the same idea here. Paul's describing a way of being in the world that is decidedly different than the way most people are. It's an attitude of refusing to retaliate when you're attacked. It's a willingness to yield even when you don't have to. This reasonableness is a gracious disposition to all. Uh, The concept of reasonableness here, I like to think of it as the result if you combined all nine fruits of the Spirit into one pie. You know, what what would all that produce? What's the totality of the fruits of the Spirit? 
It's a person who embodies love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control all at once. My translation, I would, I would say I, I like sweet reasonableness. ESV is really good, reasonableness, but I like to add the word sweet because this is not a calculated, cold reasonableness trying to gain advantage. This is a gracious, sweet reasonableness that looks out for the interests of the other. It's a person who does not insist on their own way. This is a person who doesn't have to see the manager when something goes wrong. This is a person that doesn't lose their cool when a parking lot is stolen at the mall or they're cut off on the highway. Do you know when you're studying this, by the way, when you're about to preach this, do you know how often you're confronted with situations where the Lord is like, we're going to have somebody cut you off. I'm trying to live this out and meditate and think about it like for weeks here, and I have to practice this idea of trying to be sweet reasonableness driving on the highways around here. Do you know how hard that is? You do. It is completely countercultural and against our natural disposition. Our society loves fighting for rights or blowing up against any perceived wrong. It loves canceling someone for microaggressions or anything along those lines. In fact, the greatest cultural sin you can commit now, depending on your political persuasion, is either to interfere with someone's right to authentic happiness or um, to in any way, shape, or form infringe on their freedom or liberty. Right? You, you, you cross one of those lines, and it's fighting words in our society today. It's totally not what Paul wants us to be like. If in your life you insist on all of your rights always being upheld to the maximum degree possible, you're not living out sweet reasonableness. Now, there's nothing wrong with rights. I enjoy them as do you. Paul enjoyed them as well. In fact, he had made use of them when he appealed to Caesar, right? He, he used them when it was an advantage to him and to his cause. It's not a, to say we don't use our rights. But a rigorous insistence to never suffer any wrong is not what we're called to. The best example of this is proved by Paul earlier in, in Philippians. If you were to turn over a couple pages to the left of Philippians 2.6, you would read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A thing to be grasped. It doesn't mean to be understood. It means Christ didn't grab at his rights. He didn't go through his earthly ministry grabbing at every little thing he could. As being in the unique image and glory of God, he refused to exercise this right, his rights, to utilize his favorite position and exploit his privileges. He didn't do that. He took the form of a servant. He was never threatened by that. And if Jesus didn't grab at his power, his position, and his rights, we don't have to either. A Christian can sweetly accept disadvantage and loss because Jesus did. And Paul turns our attention to this amazing fact at the end of verse 5. We can accept loss and disadvantage because the Lord is at hand. That's what it says at the end of verse 5. A Christian can yield to another even if they're in the right and the other person is wrong because our Lord is at hand. This simple truth is the key to understanding much of what Paul is getting at here. The Lord is at hand. It means that God is active in this world. He is not sitting up far away without any care of concern for us. The Lord at hand means that God is coming again soon. The second advent of our Lord Jesus is coming. Maranatha is the, the, the literal translation here. Our Lord comes. 
And this was, this was our Savior's confidence as well. He knew that his Father was at hand and that allowed him, that allowed the Lord Jesus to accept suffering and wrong. I, I'm going to turn over, if you have your Bibles, turn over real quick to 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Uh, here's a great example, and I love how this points to how Jesus had this attitude. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We're talking about Jesus here. He continued entrusting himself to his Father who judged, judged justly. Christ was sweetly reasonable in all circumstances because he knew his Father had it. He had it covered. He was going to judge all things in the end. And it is completely reasonable to not be reactive towards every wrong that comes my way because our Lord, the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, yeah, he's near and he's coming near. He's got the situation under control. So the logical behavior for a Christian in light of our Lord's nearness is sweet reasonableness. I was thinking of a sports analogy. I love watching college basketball. So imagine this scene, okay? The game is almost over. You're in the game. You're, you know, there's five seconds left. You're up by 100 points. Five seconds left in the game. What do you care about? Nothing. Go ahead and foul me. I don't care. In fact, the refs could miss the call. Doesn't matter. The game's almost over. We won. In five seconds, it won't matter. That's kind of what a Christian is like as we walk through this earth. God's got it. He's near. He's coming. I'm going to get wronged here. I'm going to get trampled on some. Ah, we're up by 100 points. Jesus wins. The end. That's, that's, that's the end of the story. We know how it ends. He's got the situation under control. That's a logical behavior for us. For us. It's a reasonable attitude to be gracious and gentle and charitable to others, even if we suffer wrong because of the Lord is near. Be sweetly reasonable. That leads into the third imperative and the third call that Paul gives us. And this is the last one we're going to look at this morning. He says, this starts in, um, at the end, it starts in verse 6. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or we could put it simply, do not be anxious, pray. We, we are probably the most anxious people that have ever lived. I hope you realize that. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if we have a way to actually measure that, but... Um, I get that sense, at least in modern times. There's some research that backs this up, too. For example, there's a group called the National Institute of uh, Health. They estimate that 31% of Americans suffer some sort of anxiety disorder in their life. I don't think that's surprising to most of us. We all experience anxiety, I mean, to some degree, maybe not to a disorder level, but all of us will leave a social event, right, and we'll go home and we'll replay every word that we said trying to go to sleep. Please tell me you've done that. I'm not the only one. Okay, right. Or maybe other times you're trying to sleep and your brain is like, hey, hey, remember that awkward thing you said five years ago? Or, or hey, remember all the things you have to do tomorrow at work? Hey, did you lock the doors? Did you pay that bill? Did you get your oil changed? You, you know, you're like, ah, oh, peace, peace, peace is what I want. Those are anxieties that assail us. And there's many reasons that we're anxious. We're perpetually connected to others through social media and our phones, right? We're continually bombarded with information and news that presents us with a new cause to care about or, or a new event to worry about. We're always contactable by anybody on the entire planet who has a phone. That's, that's crazy if you think about it. 
Our phones live by our side, and we respond to their vibrations and ring like Pavlov's dog. No wonder we're anxious. And it seems no amount of mindfulness or, or breathing techniques or sage cleanses are able to overcome our anxiety, not without trying. And I assert it's because anxiety is not something that can be addressed head on. You can't look at it and try to fix it straight ahead. Uh, it's like trying to, if I get a speck of dirt in a glass of water, and you try to get it out with your finger, and the more you try to get it, the more it just runs away from your finger. Right? This, that's what anxiety is like. The more you try to get it and get it out of your life, it seems like it just runs away from you. I think many times we're taught this verse, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. We're taught it as if prayer is the antidote to anxiety. That if you just prayed a little more, you wouldn't be anxious. This is not the argument that Paul is exactly making. If you know Paul and you've read a lot of the New Testament, you realize that his pattern of teaching is this. He presents an indicative, something that's true, followed by an imperative, something we must do. And this is the case here as well. And the truth that Paul reminds us of is that the Lord is at hand. And in case you haven't picked it up by now, that's, that's, the, that's the central theme here. The nearness of the Lord is the central theme in this section. Because the Lord is at hand, we must not be anxious. In fact, it's actually a shame that verse 5, at least in my ESV Bible, begins after the phrase, the Lord is at hand. If I could just, you know, ask the Bible editors, let's just move that, uh, sorry, verse 6, just move that number over five words to the left. That would be great. The, the verses aren't inerrant, by the way. They were added by editors. They're not in the original, so it's, they're totally uh, open to error, and I think it is an error. Because Paul is saying, the Lord is at hand, therefore do not be anxious. Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious is predicated on that fact. You can't separate Paul's command to cease from anxiety from his confident claim of the Lord is near. So Paul's solution for anxiety is not to do something, but it's to know something. There's a big difference there. You know, if you're trying to go about solving anxiety by doing something, I don't think it's going to work. It's really about knowing that the Lord is at hand and knowing the Lord who is at hand, right? It's not just the fact that he's at hand. It's knowing the Lord. And those who know the Lord is at hand are not dominated by anxiety. Paul tells us they're dominated by prayer. The natural outflowing of knowing the Lord and that he is at hand is prayer. It is, it is a muscle that you flex with that knowledge. It comes naturally. Prayer is a spiritual discipline of believing the nearness of the Lord. It is recognizing the lordship of Jesus, and it is an act of faith that presumes upon his sovereign power over creation to effect change. Prayer is the fruit of a faith that trusts that the Lord is near. It's a choosing to believe and trust in the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus. So the answer is not just to pray more, but to know more that the Lord is at hand, and that results in prayer. Because of this, we, we, we can realize that prayer is not a feeling, right? It's a discipline, exercise in obedience to the Lord's command. We are to pray. We are definitely to pray. But is it, is a, it is a discipline, exercise in obedience to this command. I think it's also important to note that prayer is not the absence of all cares or concerns. Rather, it's the redirection of our distress and our problems to a God who's near. I love that picture. You have distress and anxieties and things coming your way. The Christian just flinches. And that flinch is a prayer. It is, it is a redirection of those things to our sovereign Lord. That's the idea that when things come your way, you just bounce them off you in prayer to the Lord. 
And verse, t- verse 7 tells us the result then. After we do this, after we give these prayers and supplications and thanksgiving and requests, making them known to God, it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is actually a military metaphor here. This, this idea of guarding, he's using military language. God's peace guards our hearts and our minds like, like, a, like a detachment of Marines guarding an embassy. They don't let anybody in unless you have a right to be there. Worry, anxiety, doubt. They're all trying to get into your heart and your mind to take up residence and to live there. And God's peace doesn't allow them entry. It fortifies us against destructive patterns of thought and behavior. And if we zoom out just a little bit, we see the result of all three points here. Rejoicing in the Lord, being sweetly reasonable, and prayer instead of anxiety. The result of all those things, all those three things, the result is peace. The mature Christian fruit leads to peace. Verse 9, Paul tells us at the end here, he says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He'll be with you. See that nearness again. It's all about the nearness of the Lord in our position in Him. The peace of God. You know, that's more than just a religious platitude, by the way. Peace be with you, we say. You know, shalom. We, we, we kind of throw that word around. But it's more than a greeting. It's more than the absence of war. It's a concept rooted in the rule and reign of a king. Ralph Martin, in his commentary, he says that shalom, peace, it's a kingly blessing following directly upon the acknowledgement of God's reign and the submission of his foes. It's all about a king. This peace refers to wholeness, total health, and the welfare that flows from the rule and reign of our Lord Jesus. So it's no coincidence that the practical fruit of living out the Lord is at hand is the peace that flows from our king and his kingdom. This peace is the sum total of God's blessing to a person who belongs to him in the new covenant. It is a return to the way things should be, pre-fall, where God rules and reigns and sin is conquered and death is no more. And so the point of this passage, if we were to summarize the whole thing, it's, it's not go and try harder. It's go and know more certainly that our Lord is at hand. And the result of this is peace. This knowledge, it should be food for our souls. It makes us rejoice. It allows us to be sweetly reasonable in a broken world, and it drives us to our Lord in prayer. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we come to you. We thank you for this word you have given us, this word of encouragement, this reminder of your nearness. I pray that we would receive it with thanks and faith, and you would enable us to live for you and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.